Hello and welcome again to another episode of Lost in Science, half an hour on your radio or podcast listening device, where we talk about science. And my name is Stu, and on this week's show, I am going to answer a question that somebody asked me. How much blood can you lose and be re- and have it replaced with saline before you stop working, basically? I hope this person didn't have an urgent need for this question. No, no, no. To be it was asked. no no no. It was it was a it was a general question and they were just they <laughs> Otherwise, were just curious. You should have answered a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think I sent them to the emergency room Great. uh before I got the answer out. But no, look it was it, I thought it was an interesting question and found out some other weird things that they do with blood, including um making artificial blood for people in various They situations. make it artificial blood from blood, do they? No, they make artificial blood from things that aren't blood. Oh. Yeah. Beetroot, so, mostly. Um, it's like corn <laughs> syrup. Is, isn't it corn syrup with um, the, uh, colouring? <laughs> yeah. not, not fake blood. Oh. This is this oh, is working oh, artificial right. blood. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not just the look of it that's important. It's the function that actually makes it work. Yeah. But anyway, Claire, what have you got for us? Um, well, I'm going to be um, – there's been some exciting research with my favourite moth – of all time. I'd say everyone's favourite moth. Everyone's favourite moth. The bogong moth. The delicious bogong moth. <laughs> the delicious bogong moth. And if you don't know about the bogong moth, well, I have a story for you um, about they travel over 1,000 kilometres uh, to get to the Alpine region. Um, and up until now, no one knows how they navigate from where they uh, hatch to the Alpine region. Um, and it's just been discovered by scientists that they actually navigate via Google. <laughs> no, Google Maps. Yeah, yeah. They all Google, have a little little phone and just. <laughs> no, they use the um, the magnet magnetic earth. They use the magnetic field <laughs> of the earth. <laughs> the magnetic earth. Anyway, I'm going to talk all about that and the amazing experiments that these scientists did um, to prove that. Do they stick magnets to moths? Oh, it's even better, Chris. It's even better than that. Speaking of magnetic, Chris, what have you got for us? Oh, thanks, Stu. (laughs) Um, Well, remember, Stu, remember you a couple of weeks ago, you did a story on a famous psychology experiment. Oh, yes, the marshmallow. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. didn't... You know, it's, it's like now being re-examined and not quite what it cracked out to be. I've yeah. been telling everyone about that. Yeah. I thought that was pretty impressive, but I can find a more famous experiment, surely. That, that's even wronger? That's even wronger. <laughs> um, so I'm tackling one of the most famous psychology experiments of all time. This is the Stanford Prison Experiment, the one where they basically they stuck students in a um, fake prison. Some of them were guards, some of them were prisoners, and it really turned badly. They sat back and... With some popcorn and watch what happened. Yeah, that was the uh, that was the premise of the thing. Anyway, I'll t- I'll, I'll, for those who haven't heard of it, I will explain what it's all about. But yeah, some new information has come to light that indicates that it perhaps was not quite what it what it, what it seemed to be, and maybe some of the um, big conclusions people have drawn from it are a little bit unwarranted. And don't we just love debunking things on Lost in Science? Stay tuned for that later in the show.
Anyone who's been in an emergency ward or even, you know, watched a medical drama on TV will know that doctors often call for saline. Stat. Yeah, and it's always... CCs. It's always always CCs. Yeah, CCs are just cubic centimetres. They could say millilitres. Obviously, oh, that's hard. Your tongue, tongue trips over that more. Yeah. Fifty mils is really hard to say when you're in a when you're in a hurry. Um, so yeah, they call saline solutions to be administered to patients. So a saline drip is something you commonly see in hospitals, in casualty departments, as well as in post-op wards where patients recovering from surgery are resting. Uh, so what is the saline for? Well, basically, saline is just salty water. It's a solution of about 0.9% sodium chloride uh, by weight per volume of water. Um, and it's an intravenous solution. So you can, oh, they do use it for other things, like people wash their contact lenses and stuff with saline as well. But this is Can this you pour your pasta in it? You probably could, yeah. It would be very salty, though. <laughs> You're supposed to boil your pasta in salted water, aren't you? Um, yeah, only for flavour, though. Yeah, there, there was an old thing about, you know, it makes the water boil quicker, yeah, but the yeah. difference is negligible. So the reason that they use this concentration of 0.9% is that it approximates the osmolality of blood, which is basically to do with how water moves in and out of cells. Osmosis. Bl- yeah. It's, osmolality. It's osmolality, not yeah. osmolarity, which is a different measure of something. But um, basically, if the blood was too salty, it would suck water out of cells. And if it wasn't salty enough, uh, it would get sucked into cells. So it would, you know, your blood would dry out, basically. So they've got to have it at this particular uh, concentration so that it works kind of like blood serum, which is the liquid part of the blood. So sometimes they also use a low sodium version. So if people are massively dehydrated or they have to be on a drip for a really long time, they drop the amount of sodium in it and boost it up to keep the osmolality the same with dextrose, which is a sugar. So basically you're getting fed out of the drip as well. So the reason I investigated this is because someone asked me the other day, Uh, how much of someone's blood can be replaced by this saline solution? And I had no idea. So (laughs) I went and found out. And it seems that uh, in humans, up to about half of our blood can be replaced by saline solution and you can survive. But obviously, it's not replacing all of the functions of blood. One of the most important ones that blood does, one of the most important functions it has is delivering oxygen. So salty water is not very good at delivering oxygen. It's just good at basically keeping your veins open. Um, So also blood carries nutrients and hormones uh, and oxygen to tissues around the body and also removes waste products from the cells. So saline is just not really cut out to do some of that um, or to do most of it, basically. (laughs) Um, So in some emergency applications, for example, in the military... They use artificial blood. If someone loses too much blood, they actually have artificial blood, which has um, many of the properties of, of real blood. Wow. And can carry oxygen and, you know, does all of the other functions that blood does. It's really expensive, though. Okay. So it's not commonly used, especially when you've got access to whole blood, which hospitals usually do because they just keep it in the fridge. But if you're out, 
you know, in on manoeuvres in the military, then you can't refrigerate the blood. So they have this artificial blood that they can take with them. So the artificial blood doesn't need to be refrigerated. No, which is, yeah, it's one of the reasons. It just comes in a tetra pack. <laughs> yeah, like just a Prima thing and they just <laughs> poke, poke the straw in there. And no, I, I, I'm sure it's got, you know, pretty secure packaging. Because sure. you wouldn't want it to leak out everywhere. It is apparently very expensive. Um, and most hospitals, they just use, uh, whole blood because they have fridges full of it. Um, well, they should have, they should, they should have fridges full of it. And, uh, if, you know, if people want to go and donate, they should do that because that's a very useful thing to do with your blood if you have some to spare. Um, and, and according to you, you can spare about half of it. So, well, I'd say they they usually take not very much when you go and donate. It's only sort of half a liter at a time, I think. Um, so recent research into severe blood loss has shown that having a solution that has a higher osmolality than blood is actually sometimes a better option than using this 0.9% saline solution. So they actually found that... Um, so that's a high concentration. A higher of, concentration of salt. Of salt. Like a salt. salty concentration. Yeah, and even, to... even saltier. Uh-huh. Um, and what they've found is that that actually draws liquid towards where that solution is. So it actually, if, if someone's lost a lot of blood, there's got, there's sort of lost the connection with their extreme, you know, extremities of their limbs and stuff. So this higher osmolality saline actually draws fluid towards it. So it actually gets the blood flowing again, um, which avoids, you know, problems with gangrene and lack of oxygen and things like that. So is that something that they might do initially, like use well, a higher osmolality initially and then lower the osmolality? Yeah, it's kind of an emergency treatment to sort of get the blood flow mm. happening again and then they'll probably wean them off it once there's sufficient liquid in the body. Um so one of the other things in biology, one of the most important factors is temperature and most cell function is highly temperature dependent, which is why we have a stable constant temperature of 37 degrees or thereabouts, plus or minus a little bit, but it can't go up and down too much. If it gets too hot, proteins and enzymes get denatured and if it gets too cold, they stop working altogether. And blood is a way of helping to regulate that temperature by removing or restoring heat to hot or cold parts of the body. Now, uh, in the U.S. military, a medical team have proposed that using that temp- using a massive temperature drop to save patients who might not be able to survive surgery. So they're talking about people with major, you know, wartime kind of injuries. And what they're suggesting is that they can replace all of a patient's blood with a supercooled saline solution, which allows doctors several extra hours to operate on severe injuries and then they pump all their blood back in and resuscitate them and they come back to life now it sounds pretty you know science fictiony it's like suspended animation kind of um sort of uh procedure and this is a proposal and they've actually only been able to do it with pigs so they've actually done this with with you know, live pigs and super cooled them and operated on them and then brought them back to life again. They haven't actually managed to do it with human subjects yet. And there's a bit of, bit of an issue with uh, consent because a lot sure. of the patient, like the patients that yeah. they're trying to treat 
are unconscious on arrival, so they can't actually consent to an experimental procedure. So they've got a bit of a problem with that. Uh, but they do, they, they're, they're saying that they might be able to uh, complete human trials in the next couple of years, and then they'll be able to publish results. But it's, you know, they've been talking about it since uh, 2012, and they've got these animal models where they've done it, but they can't actually step it up to humans because of ethics approval is the main thing. They can't actually get it. But it's an interesting concept. Uh, if you could actually replace the blood um, and and keep the body intact, um, how long can you sort of stretch it out with a, with without having any blood? Because you're not actually, you know, you're sort of putting a refrigerant in the bloodstream <laughs> instead of instead of the blood so you know it's a, it's an interesting idea but um yeah so if, if these guys uh do manage to succeed in their experiments will will they will be able to literally replace all of your blood with saline solution and you will still survive which is kind of amazing super cool Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So some new research has come out recently concerning my favourite Lepidoptera of all time. That is uh, from the family of moths and butterflies. So you prefer it to like the the monarch butterfly and uh, those kind of things? Yeah. Yeah, Monarch butterfly is not even an Australian butterfly. Yeah. Well, okay. So what what I'm talking about. It's an invasive species though. (laughs) Can you guess what I'm talking about? Bogong moth. The bogong moth. That's right. Right. Not the bogan moth. No. Um, As some might call it. As some might call it. That is something different. Um, Bogong moth. They are incredible insects. Possibly some of the most incredible insects. Uh, not necessarily to look at. In fact, they're pretty plain looking. Um, very unassuming, small, brown. Well, they're not that small. A little bit like me. There's, some, there's some pretty big ones. Bogong moths? Yeah, they, they, get, they get quite they, large. They, they do get large? Yeah. All right. Uh, unassuming, large, brown. <laughs> <laughs> um. But these little moths make big journeys every year. Uh, each spring, billions, not millions, billions of bogong moths hatch in southeastern Australia uh, and also in Queensland before flying 1,000 kilometres through the dark night uh, to finally arrive uh, at Australia's Alps, the Australian Alps, and more specifically to a certain um, alpine cave. So they just really... the one cave. They billions of them go to one cave. Oh no, like caves. But there's like, oh. yeah, there's a couple of caves, but they're not that many caves. I mean, but there's got to be more than one cave. You have got one billion moths. You're talking about the moth cave. It's the moth cave. And why do they go uh, to breed? Good question. To feed? To get away from Queenslanders? Sorry, Chris. Oh <laughs> no, um, they come. To the Alpine, they head to the Alpine to have a holiday, to cool off uh, and hibernate over the summer. Oh, so they, they don't do those other things? No, they don't do those other things. It's just to hibernate and to um, hang out in the nice cool caves of the Alpine, of Alpine Australia. 
um, yeah, what in the in the off season for for skiing, so they don't have to put up with all the yuppies on the slopes. Um, <laughs> anyway, after a few months of summer dormancy in the cool mountain caves, the moss fly right back to the breeding grounds where they were born. Um, now, up until now. It's only been guesswork as to exactly how these moths make their way from Queensland, Victoria to the Australian Alps. Um, as they're nocturnal, there have been some suggestion they could be navigating by the stars or via environmental landmarks like mountains. Um, <clears throat> but one thing that scientists weren't totally sold on was that these little moths were navigating via the Earth's magnetic field. In fact, they were sort of like, ah, ah invertebrates, magnetic field. I don't think so. They really didn't even, didn't even think that, that that was going to be the case. I see. I'm always surprised when people claim like vertebrates, like complicated animals are doing complicated animals. Like it was a story did a report on a while back of like cows being magnetic. And that's just kind of going, nah, that sounds unlikely. I'd accept a moth being magnetic more than I would a cow. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, when, when you think of, um, uh, animals who migrate via the Earth's magnetic field. You think of birds and you think of turtles and even some fish have been known to navigate via the Earth's magnetic field. Um, all vertebrates, I don't know, I mean cows, also vertebrates. Did you say cows actually migrate? No. No, they don't migrate, but no. they, 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 they seem they to totally orient themselves. Yeah, align they... themselves, orient themselves <laughs> with the magnetic field. Right, Okay. So anyway, they found that moths um, actually can migrate via the Earth's magnetic field. Um, and in a paper published, published in Current Biology, the researchers tested how the moths react to moving visual cues um, and also to magnetic fields. Um, <clears throat> now, to do this, they created what can only be described as a tiny little moth flight simulator. Um, so imagine a cylinder um, with a pole in the middle, um, <laughs> like a round room um, on a platform. Uh, anyway, around the edges of the cylinder, you have these pretend visual landmarks. So things, you know, like like felt stuck to the stuck to the walls that so might look made, like a mountain them, or something like that. They made them a little fuzzy felt uh, mountain mountain yeah diorama yeah basically. yeah they made them they made a tiny little moth diorama um, and then they hung out in Narrabri in uh, New South Wales as as you do um, and caught them on their way down to the Alps. Um, and then they also did it again when they were heading back to Queensland, caught them again, um, to test what would happen when they put them in this tiny little moth diorama. <laughs> anyway, obviously you can't just let a moth go in this diorama. You need to tether it somehow. Why? How big is this diorama? Well, it's pretty small. It's like... I don't know, a bit over thirty centimeters, a little bit, a little bit more. So why couldn't you just let the moth go? It's not like it's going anywhere. <laughs> no, but you want to measure like how it actually orientates itself oh, okay. because you've got these visual cues around right, the sides right, right. of the cylinder, and then you're also applying this magnetic force. Okay. So you've got this magnetic force and the and the um and the visual cues, and um and you've got these tethered moths, moths, um, and so they started so. 
the moth's in the middle. And the researchers then started to move um, the cylinder and the magnetic field at the same time and see what the moth would do. Um, and when this happened, the moth's flight direction um, and their head, they orientate themselves um, in a different way as predicted you would if you were like, you know, noticing, you know, using a compass and yep. then um, the compass said one thing um, and the the landscape said one thing. Then you're like, oh, this is the way I'm going. This is this is um, the direction that I'm headed in as a moth in a tiny little moth diorama. But what was the um, what was the landscape? I mean, did they do an accurate landscape that the moths would encounter? Like, did they do like the Narrabri countryside, which I think is fairly flat generally, um, or did they like just random mountains and things? And I think they were like random mountains, but just things that were like visually different. Right. Yeah. So it was like the difference between. But the moths go around, I don't know where I am amongst these felt <laughs> no, mountains. The get, moths have no idea where they the are. Get the compass out. Get the compass out. Just yeah. turning. But if they moved just the visual landmarks, like just the mountains, but kept the magnetic field in the same place, then the moths became totally disoriented and got all muddled up and started moving everywhere. So move the visual landmarks and the magnetic field in the same way and moths are heading oh, in the same direction. They've got direction. a sensation that I'm yes. moving, I know what yes. I'm doing. Yeah. Oh, I know where I'm going, I'm heading in this yeah, direction. Yeah. They all moved in the same way. But if you move them at odds with one another, they're all like, what, what's going on in moth language? Anyway, so this suggests that for the researchers um, that the moths need both the visual landmarks as well as the magnetic cues um, and the moths check in on both pieces of environmental information um, on an ongoing basis. So, I mean, just like us, when we would be, you know, when we're out in the wilderness with a map, a compass and, you know, just our senses, then we're also, you know, checking to orientate ourselves with the compass. We're looking at the mountains, we're looking at trees and rocks and, you know, um, updating our position in the world based on that. And that's apparently what the bogong moths do as well. So there we have it, the first reliable evidence that insects are um, much cleverer than us in some ways. Okay, yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and I'm talking about the Stanford Prison Experiment. Do you guys know what the Stanford Prison Experiment was? Yeah. Yeah, I know it went horribly wrong. Well, yeah, supposedly. That's a, the, the, the way the story goes. Or did um, it go horribly right? I mean, what were they trying to test anyway? Well, it kind of did what they were meant to do. So the, the story was basically yeah, but that... it ended in torture, didn't it? Sorry, go on. Okay, the, the story, it took place in 1971, so back, back before ethics. Um <laughs> 
It involved, like, it was set up by a psychologist, Philip Zimbardo, and he assigned college students as participants to either be guards or prisoners. And the result of the experiment, supposedly, was that the guards uh, just turned really cruel to the prisoners who were, in their, who were in their charge. The experiment had to be stopped early due to the effect it was having on the prisoners. Apparently, his girlfriend came back from a trip and saw what was going on and said, you've got to stop this. Uh, so that was that's the that's the official story. Um, so, so the guy who set it up didn't think that there was anything wrong with what he was doing, presumably. Well, get, again, that's the story. <laughs> um, so, but recently there has been some some more information coming out. There was an expose um, published on the website Medium by the journalist Ben Bloom, and there was a book published by a French academic Thibaut Le Texier that went back and examined some of the original documents from the experiment and some audio tapes. Of, uh, of what was going on. And together, these two bits of journalism, they've shown that the experiment wasn't quite what it seemed. And, you know, people like to draw conclusions from this experiment, what it means for human nature, and that maybe some of those conclusions aren't quite valid. People have been jumping to conclusions. Because it says a lot to us, I think a lot of us, we think about, oh, this is, you know, how people will turn cruel if they put in a position of authority. So it basically mm. says things about, you know, we all have an innate capacity for doing bad things. But also it's kind of been a way to excuse bad behaviour in the way so well, like I'm in a system that uh, encourages bad things to happen. So it's not my fault if I do mm. something wrong because everyone does it, you know. And that was actually used as a defence in the with the Abu Ghraib thing in Iraq. That they basically went, oh, look, you know, this is how guards in prisons behave. That's what the, the psychology experiment said. That's what, that's that's life. So. Yeah, and there's no responsibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's it's it's a very it's a very significant experiment from yeah. that point of view. Um, so anyway, uh, so most tellings of the story, the, the most dramatic event, uh, and this was also featured in the 2015 movie, the Stanford Prison Experiment. Um, <laughs> there was a movie. There was a movie. I think it starred Billy Crudup and Ezra Miller. Uh, Ezra Miller played this prisoner, um, Douglas Corpy, who had an emotional breakdown. Uh, he like has this big, you know, yeah, very intense breakdown where he's going. Oh, can't take it anymore. Um, anyway, but he has since said that he actually faked the breakdown because he was just a bit fed up. He what he thought he was going to go on this thing as a nice kind of break. He could use he could study for grad school. They wouldn't give him his books, so he put on an act, giant. Um, so he, he he faked it. He was he did like what they do in the soccer when they get a little tiny injury <laughs> and they roll around on the ground as if they've been mortally wounded. But yeah, but as long as he got a penalty after it, then that's okay. Well, see, the <laughs> thing is, though, as much as he said he was faking it, one of the other things he did say was that they had told him also that he wasn't allowed to leave because he would thought, I'll just go out and study. They told him he wasn't allowed to leave. And um, the records and one of the statements from another participant backed that up. So instead of this being an experiment with people with fake prisoners, they were actually real prisoners in the sense that they were told they couldn't leave. And that's kind wow. of illegal as well. Yeah. Um, and furthermore, the guards actually didn't spontaneously decide to be cruel. So the techniques that they used to um, torment the prisoners, they came mostly, they were suggested by a former prisoner who was hired as a consultant. Um, and there was a student who was in the role of the warden had actually tried an earlier version of this experiment and he had come up with a few of these ideas. And in their induction to guards, um, Zimbardo actually encouraged them to use their power to create, as I said, boredom and frustration and fear in the prisoners. Um, so some of the guards have said that you know they they um, they performed a role. They thought there was what Zimbardo wanted to see. They wanted to see them acting up and being cruel. So that's that's the role that they played. Uh, so yeah. So now I guess some psychologists are saying that the Stanford experiment wasn't so much a display of everyone's kind of kind of innate cruelty as about 
leadership, as in if someone tells you to do bad things, you will do bad things, essentially, because that's what Zimbardo did, effectively, according to the records that have come to light. Uh, so look, there was a, an attempted replication of the experiment done in uh, the year 2002. Uh, psychologists Alex Haslam and Steve Riker, um, they worked with the BBC on this. So it was done in the age of ethics. Um, and so the things were a little bit different. Um, the, the, um, the prisoners in this case were told that they could leave. Um, the guards weren't given instructions to be cruel. In fact, they weren't given much instructions at all. Um, and the results were extremely different. Like the guards had... Felt... I think I've heard of this one. Is yeah. it called Big Brother? <laughs> It was televised. Um, it was just a BBC prison experiment. There's a TV right. show called The Experiment. Uh, so the guards, they felt uncomfortable in their position of power. They were kind of very uh, unsure of themselves and divided about what to do. Whereas the prisoners essentially didn't like that, but they were cheating and they, they rebelled against the guards. Um, it went through a brief period of democracy until some prisoners decided they wanted to take over and they stopped the experiment at that point when people were sort of, they reached an impasse that could not be solved without resorting to violence, which of course they didn't want to have happen. So, but the thing is, it was very different. It was very different to the Stanford experiment where supposedly the guards straight away turned cruel on the prisoners. This is kind of the opposite. You know, the, the guards were at the mercy of the prisoners because the prisoners identified with their group of being prisoners and the guards were like, oh, we don't want to torture these guys. Um, yeah, so, um, but, you know, one of the things that they claimed this experiment showed was, again, when, like, leaders emerged in the group uh, and they were able to direct people and, and say we want an authoritarian regime, that was similar to what Zimbardo was doing in his original experiment where he was basically the authoritarian leader and telling them this is what you need to do. So, yeah, um, the experiment has been increasingly discredited in the psychology community. It's being removed from textbooks um, gradually, um, but it's kind of got a huge effect on popular culture and it's going to be a long time till it is removed, I think. Um, you know, people say a lot of bad things about psychology. There's this whole thing they talk about the replication crisis um, where it's been, there's a lot of trouble replicating famous psychology experiments. They don't work out the same when you try and do them again. Uh, so people say, oh, this is, you know, means a, a fundamental problem with psychology. I think there's some things that suggest that maybe psychology is not uniquely bad compared to other sciences. But I think one of the things about psychology is that we draw such big conclusions of it. We, we you know, look at its impact on society. And yeah, we, we jump to conclusions based on, you know, single studies like this one, sensational studies. And perhaps we should be a bit more cautious because it is science and you have to wait till things are replicated and are actually real before you, I don't know assume that this is the way that society is and the way that human nature is. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science.
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.